Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Two Notes Audio Engineering. Two Notes is a leader in the market for Moldbox, Cabinet, and Mic Simulators. Gone are the days of having ISO rooms, or having to record an amp at ear-bleeding volumes to capture that magic tone. The Torpedo Live, Reload, and Studio allow you to crank your amp up as loud as you want, but record silently. Check out www.2-notes.com for more info. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges and A.L. Levy. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. Welcome back. Welcome. Yeah, thank you for being a, uh, continuing to be a loyal subscriber. We really appreciate that. However, we want to make sure that you're aware that we do also have a podcast on iTunes that anyone can listen to, not just subscribers, but any walk of life, anyone with an iPhone or a smartphone or whatever. In fact, you could just listen to our podcast on our website. Um, so if you've got any friends that aren't quite subscribed yet and they're not signed up, but you think that they should check this out, make sure to let them know about that. Uh, you could send them to urm.academy. And once they go there, they can click right on podcast, or you can just search for unstoppable recording machine in the iTunes podcast list there, and it'll pop right up on the search. We really appreciate that, and uh, hopefully we can spread the word and get more people involved because this would be nothing without a community. And you guys are a great community, so we really appreciate that. The best. Today's show is going to be really cool. We have a special guest with us, and I will allow Al to introduce him. Yes. So um, I've got my buddy Alex Prieto here. Um, you guys might have heard of him, and if you haven't, I know that you've heard stuff he's worked on and you love him. You just don't know that you love him yet, but I'm going to tell you how you know that you love him. So basically, he's been he's been around the block a few times at this point. Started out in Boston. He was mentored by legendary producer Susan Rogers, who's worked with like Prince of all, you know, n- no big deal. He moved to New York, started working with uh, David Bendeth and Dan Corneff. He's worked with bands like Pierce the Veil, Devil Wears Prada, Motionless and White, Crown the Empire. It's also a member of Exploding and Sound Records, band Grass is Green, and he does front of house for one of my favorite unknown bands, uh, Secret Chiefs 3, which is one of my heroes' band. Uh, Trace Bruins, the guitar player for Mr. Bungle, that's his uh, one-third of Bungle side project. They do crazy shit, and I've loved them for like 15 years, so that's cool. Uh, fellow Berkeley attendee, though, did you drop out like I did? No, I suffered through it. You bastard. <laughs> You're one of the few, because we have had a, a few Berkeley dropouts on here before. Uh, I feel like that's kind of like the cool thing to do. I don't I don't know if I'm right or wrong about that, but I've, it's like you go there and then you just drop out. Like, that's what everyone does. <laughs> there's not that many people who actually finish. And then out of the people who finish, there's fewer people who actually develop a career. Most people with careers are like, fuck this place. But Alex is the exception. Yeah, I'm a dumbass. Uh, no, it was, uh, <laughs> I had so much skin in the game that like, I just had to see it through. And, you know, there was a lot of technical education that I got there that I was, I was fast tracked on. Like I walked out of there knowing I could walk into almost any studio, large format console, small format console, just like a, a writing room and figure it out. I mean, uh, that was that was kind of the stuff that I think was worth it. That being said, could I have interned, which I did do during my time. I was working full-time, interning at a studio and going to college there. So, 
you know, that was pretty crucial. What the school doesn't teach you and I kind of don't expect them to is how to handle clients. And that, that's really what I learned from, from interning and just being ridden real hard by a couple of great engineers in the Boston area. Can you describe what getting ridden real hard means in this context? Open to interpretation. Uh, you know, first one there, last one to leave, making sure everything is clean. You know, walking into a situation or with a client and knowing what everyone's drinking, just the little detail stuff like that is so crucial. As arbitrary and just like asinine as it sounds, there was a place I was working at and they used to have these little black stones lining the hallways and I would clean them with a Windex and a paper towel twice a month and it was just kind of like, you know, kind of paying your dues, I guess. And, you know, they would let, you know, every step you kind of went further, a little more access, a little bit more, you know, getting in with the clients and, and, and seeing how everything worked, I guess. I don't think it's asinine. It's not asinine at all. Like uh, our buddy, Josh Newell, who's been on the podcast a bunch of times and who has also worked with some huge, huge acts and under some huge producers, he got his first like massive break with Lincoln Park by getting the uh, the food orders right. That's why they gave him a shot with uh, editing some drums, I believe. Yeah, I mean it's the old adage like, if, 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 can I speak freely on here? Like if yeah, you can fucking speak fucking freely. That's beautiful. Yeah, like if you <laughs> fuck up the coffee order, why would I even let you think about touching the session? There's thousands of dollars here. The studio's reputation the artist's career, and you fucked up the coffee order, it's like, dude, that's day one shit. You can't do that. So, you know. I'm so glad you said that because I think people look at it the, the opposite way, right? Like an intern, you know, says, oh, the coffee order is not that important. What I really need to focus on is getting this computer thing right. It's like, no, if you can't get the coffee order right, you can't even touch the session. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and just, and then you kind of work your way up, you know. It was weird. Like the first studio interned at, uh, I got kind of screwed there. They kind of made me, you know, chase my tail a little bit. Like it was six months in, and oh, you're the next guy in line when so and so goes to LA. Three months later, oh, well, it's you and this other guy. Three months later, oh, it's well, you, it's this other guy and another person. Until like I was starting to bring my own clients into the studio. One night, I get a call saying, "Oh, your session's canceled." They didn't know my internship was that night, so I walk in there, see my client with one of the other engineers, and then the response was. Hey man, that's the biz. <laughs> I walked out that night. I was like 19 or 20. And from like then on, I was like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm going to just going to go get my own clients. And like, that actually is what steamrolled everything. Cause that's what got me in with Scott Riebling, who had done like fallout boy and butch Walker stuff was like, he kind of pulled a client that was working there. Long story short, but yeah, just, you know, I was like, fuck this. I'm never going to look to anybody for all my work ever again. You know, and that's kind of worked out even working with Dan. It was always like, Hey man, like I'm going to pay you. It's not going to be great, but your responsibility and the deal I'm going to make is when you're not working on my shit, get your own work. And that worked out beautifully. Well, you know that some guys don't let their, uh, their underlings get their own work. (laughs) No, I'm, I'm serious. Uh, some guys have to sign deals, uh, that if they're working under so-and-so, they're not allowed to book their own stuff. And they also, that guy also gets a bit of their publishing. I'm, I'm sure we're talking about the same guy. I have a very close friend who spent some time with him. And uh, yeah, you know, he, he hopefully he keeps you busy enough where, and pays you well enough where that's cool. But, I, you know, Joey, you're an example of that, of like self-sustaining business. Like I'm going to go out and get my own shit and like screw 
everybody else. Screw tradition. Yeah. You know, and I think there's also something to be said about that too, is like, you know, it was a little weird, like spending all this time, like learning, you know, the, the technical side, the engineering side and how to handle clients. And it seems like a lot of that stuff is kind of, kind of fading by, um, a little bit. So I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's kind of like the wild West post Napster right now. Yeah. But don't you think that all your technical, uh, info from Berkeley made a big deal considering who you've worked with, like Dan working on a board and like maintaining the old studio kind of, um, workflow didn't that make a big difference where a guy who maybe is completely self-taught and in the box wouldn't be able to hang with Dan absolutely like I was able to walk in house allowed day one and you know I wasn't expecting them to even let me touch the SSL but I could run it like I can get the automation going and get things moving around that being said like you can't go in there and like push the assistant out of the way and be like fuck you dude what are you doing you know you, you gotta sit in the corner be quiet and learn as much as you can but yeah it definitely was an advantage because they would ask questions or you know give you a little test and try to trip you up or whatever you know if you catch it you know you're in good and the good graces i think it was kind of funny though Cato Kondwala, who you know did the pretty reckless and all i think he's a and r at razor and tie now so congrats to him he didn't actually start talking to me until I took scotch tape and cleaned his pedal boards with scotch tape and got all the lint off. But you know what, though? Back to what you originally said about it not being asinine. I think that doing that kind of stuff, getting the drink orders right, it shows that you're mindful and paying attention of other people's needs. Yeah, I, you know, we deal with these bands that, you know, you got these kids that are 19 that are thrown into this public spotlight and they're very vulnerable. You know what I mean? And, and they're very insecure. They really don't know what's going I didn't know what the hell I was doing at 19, let alone having to like go play in front of thousands of people and deal with business and taxes and, and all the crap that comes with being in a band now. And let alone you have four, six weeks to write a record, you know, because most bands don't even have the time to like spend months and write stuff. You know, you're on the road and then you go, okay, you've got six weeks to go make the record. You know, we've all been there. It's like, well, we've got five songs. We're just going to write the other five in the studio. And like, <laughs> you got to make sure that their needs are attended and, and they're okay. And they're in a good mental mindset to be creative and, and, and be comfortable. And I think, you know, just paying attention to their Coke, you know, or like what they drink, you know, and you can pay attention to other things like, oh, you know, like the bass player just broke up with his girlfriend. Or they were in talks about kicking him out. It's just overhearing all these little details of conversation. And you know what to say, what not to say, how to keep him in the moment, when to push everyone out of the room and just you know work with that person one-on-one. -on -one. Or maybe that person needs the seven dudes in the band in the, in the room at the same time. But you don't know that unless you pay attention to the dudes and what the conversations are. Less talking, more listening. Yeah, and just being a wallflower. Uh, and I think... That's that's super important. I think you get better results out of people that way too. Is you know, just listening, just not waiting for your turn to talk. I think you can do that in any walk of life. Just listen. I think it's one of the secrets to life. Is just listen to people more. They'll pretty much always tell you what they need out of you in order to be happy with uh, your interactions. Joey, I, you know, I'm I'm curious. Like on the topic of internships and getting clients did, did you ever even consider getting an internship or were you just like fuck it i'm fucking wild westing this shit 
Well, the the thing that's so interesting about my story is that I really just kind of rolled into it. Like it just started with one band and then that turned into two and then that turned into three and then to six and then to 12. And so by the time I could even think about like, oh, how should I approach this as a career? I already had like customers and I know that's not going to be the same story for a lot of people. So, you know, I don't know how much advice I have to give other than just like the one thing that I did every time, every single time was made sure that the people were happy. Uh, you know, I was always like, do you like this guitar tone? Do you like the sound of this kick drum? And and if they were willing to be honest with me and be like, no, I'd, I think it could be better. I would sit there and work on it until it was better. So I don't know if that's, you know, that's probably the best advice I have is just make sure everyone was always happy. Uh, because then I knew that after they leave there, they would have nothing but good things to say about me. You know, I think there's also little things you can do that don't require any like intense psychological work um, when you're making a band happy. And this is something that guys at the very bottom can do when they're first getting people into their basement studio or whatever. Um, this doesn't take having a, uh, you know, a long line of bands that you've already broken or anything like that. Just little things go a long way. For instance, having a fridge and stocking it with a few different drinks like water and a few energy drinks and some Cokes or something will cost you 10 bucks. Bands appreciate shit like that. The more you can make them feel like a VIP, even if you don't run a VIP operation, the more you can feel make them feel like they're getting taken care of, the better off it's going to be. And those little things, like you know, it's low-hanging fruit and it seems dumb, but it, it's totally not dumb because they'll remember that uh, you cared about you cared about them when it came time for their session. I mean, yeah, that's like, that's not hospitality is number one, man. Like, and that's just like, I think back at like Rose Mancherney, who I think was at record plant and she was the first studio manager to really just take that to the next level. And that's why that place is still running at $1,500 a day is because clients, (laughs) yeah, I mean, clients go there expecting like five star service and that's what they're going to get. You're going to pay for it, but that's what you're going to get. And there's, you know, there's no, cutting corners at all you know and I, I think that's really it's number one I mean you don't have to go that crazy you know with like turn down service and shit but you know make them feel comfortable make them feel at home and I, I think the guys that learn that soonest are uh, going to be the most successful and the whole surly old engineer thing that ah, fuck the bands I know better thing does not work anymore you are no longer the gatekeeper man like the 15 year old kid has an inbox and a laptop. And if he's cool with the band, they're going to go record with him. Doesn't know. doesn't matter how much gear you have, you know? So speaking of gear, well, I'm just curious. Cause you know, it is true that it doesn't matter what gear you have to some degree, but at what point do you think it starts to matter? Like at what point do you think that, okay, we, we should probably, at least have some nice preamps or something like at what point do you think that gear does start to make a difference? Oh man. Depends on what gear. I, I think it, and it depends on how well you know your gear, I guess. That's such a loaded question. I know. <laughs> you know, it, I remember, well, I'm just going to go like, I remember I was sitting at the super bougie studio in Boston and someone played one of Joey's mix. I think it was like attack attack or something. And they're like, yeah, this dude does it all in the box. And I just like had my head in my hands. I was like, what the hell am I spending all this time learning all this gear for? Like, I 
was very resentful at the time to, you know, to, to be totally honest. I was like, shit, this kid is kicking my ass. And I think we're like the same age too. And he's just 31. Uh, I just turned 30. All right. I don't feel so bad now, <laughs> but you know, I, I think it's really just what you do with it. I, I think there really is no proper time. I, I think the, Little changes, it, it, what you focus on. I mean, a lot of the kids in this forum are doing the DI guitars, the MIDI drums. So how are you going to set yourself apart? Have a really good sounding vocal. So spend some money on a vocal, pre, you know, a nice preamp, an API. You can get uh, like a Great River for like a thousand bucks, which yes, is a lot of money. But, you know, and you, and you start to build it and you'll see where your weak points are. Like if you're noticing, I mean, I think it's like having one good pre for vocals and then monitoring. I think if you know what you're listening to, you can do more damage than if you have an entire room packed with gear. If, if you don't know what you're listening to or what's going on, you're, you're kind of just spending your own gears a little bit. I agree with you completely. I think that, that that room listening and what they're recording into, you know, computer as well as the interface should be the, the first line of attack. Yeah, and, you know, gain staging as well, which, you know, I, I get stuff to mix and I'm like, oh my god, this vocal's crushed. And like, yeah, well, he, he just like dimed it going into the pre because he wanted that like saturation thing. And I don't know what the deal is with that now. Everyone's saturating everything and I'm kind of like, all right, I guess. I mean, are they saturating it or are they just pinning the pinning a uh, focus right uh, Scarlet input? I, dude, it, it's, it sounded like, it just sounded like they put Decapitator on stun. And I'm just like, oh, this is the clean vocal. All right, cool. I guess, I guess we'll just go with it. So you end up just making it more like crazy weird. Like, but yeah, we're kind of off the gear thing now. But you know, I think just gain staging and and listening, just like fucking listen, and all you know, and you'll get more out of your gear that way. Like, use if you're starting out, use references. That helped me so much. What What do you do for referencing now? To be honest, like. I haven't been doing too much referencing. I finally feel like I'm at a point where I kind of know where, where stuff is hitting right. But for years, you know, it was obviously Dan's stuff, which is why I kind of targeted that whole camp. Um, a lot of Rich Costi stuff, I think. He, you know, listening to his stuff makes me put my head in my hands. Um, ben Gross is awesome. I uh, like that Manson record he did, This Is The New Shit, or This Is The New Scene. When that comes in, like that's my reference for just low end and the way the vocal sounds all the time. Like it just, it's crushing. So that's kind of what I'm using for references. It, you know, and it goes to the style too. I'm not gonna if I'm doing like an Arctic Monkey style band, I'm not gonna go listen to Cattle Decapitation or something. <laughs> so when uh, when do you have do you have any tips for people who reference? Because I feel like people do listen to us about using reference mixes, but I feel like they do it wrong. Like, for instance, they try to copy one mix or something. Like, do you have, like, a method for referencing? I feel like level matching is the most important. You know, I feel like, and, and getting a high-quality version of what you're like, well, you know, uh, I'm monitoring my mix through my DAW, but I'm, like, streaming the song off of YouTube, and it's way louder, or it's way softer. It's like... Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I saw a post on this, and I'm not trying to, like, you know start shit with this kid. I'm just saying like there, you know, people kind of got on him about it 
but it's little little things like that. You know, I know you guys are both using Cubase now, but you can like bring sessions in like a song into your session, route it out of the queues and just monitor the queues and you can go back and forth and then use the meters to make sure they're the same volume. You know, and uh, and I think that's pretty crucial. It's just level matching it as best you can because you're going like, "Why isn't why isn't my thing loud enough?" and you're like your whole mix is clipping and it's actually way louder than the thing you were streaming off of YouTube. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, that's the first thing that I think a lot of people need to understand right now is that iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, pretty much anything is playing back stuff, uh, with a normalization algorithm. So you're not really getting the true volume of the recording ever, unless you, I don't know, buy the CD or download the file and play it in a lossless player that doesn't modify anything <laughs> which is kind of hard to do now because all the players have like volume matching and sound check uh, enabled and stuff like that so yeah, everything's kind of a little funky like I was, I was actually talking to Mike Collagian last night like and like mastering for iTunes and all this stuff and I think it's actually like less compression which is awesome yeah they want they want uh, my friend actually just got uh, certified to do that so basically what they want is every time the file gets transferred into a different format, like say, you know, it goes from wave to MP3 or from wave to M4A, they don't want it to clip. So there's a special utility that you get that comes from Apple that you can uh, scan your audio through and it'll kind of predict if that's going to happen. And it'll tell you like, uh, this is too loud. So, uh, they actually want some peaks and valleys in there. It seems like wow, say it ain't so. I mean, <laughs> like, I, I mean that's kind of awesome. Like, I think some like converge Jane Doe should be clipped and sound like you're going through hell. But you know, I don't know if uh, if it's for everything. And I, and if you like level match or RMS, I forget how to the, the term. I think like on brick wall limited slammed out mixes sound smaller than like. I just mix with just that is just killing, you know what I mean? I think if you just kind of RMS game match them, forget the exact term, but they were trying to implement that like Bob Katz was on an AES panel a few years back and kind of not try to get too technical because it's way above my pay grade. But they played them next to each other, and holy shit, like the unmastered, unlimited to hell track sounded huge. Like, people like fell out of their chairs with how big the kick drum was in comparison to like the super slammed L2 to death clip. Yeah. Like I kind of think it's cool, but I don't know. I think it's an artistic statement more than anything now on how much your brick wall and shit. And I think it's also like kind of a cock measuring contest. Like, well, I'm louder than you are, bro. So it sounds way better. <laughs> so, I, I don't know what the change is going to be with that, especially with all like Apple music streaming and all, and what that's going to mean. I know Joey, you master your own stuff. I'm not that much of a masochist, so I, I sent it to Mike. Um, I mean, it's definitely, at this point, it's, I feel like it's starting to, I don't do as much work as I used to, so I definitely see things starting to change uh, to a degree where I'm like, wait, wait for me. Like, I, <laughs> But I know at this point right now, like physical delivery is pretty much dead, so final product is always digital now. Everyone wants a DDP. And I've been asked a couple times, and this is like in the last year to do mastered for iTunes, and I'm just I never went through it. So I was like, you guys have to find someone else to do it. I can give you the files that that Apple wants, 
to to start with, but you're gonna have to have someone actually uh, certified do it because they don't let just anyone do it. You have to be yeah. You have to like literally contact Apple. You gotta get the blue check mark. Yeah, exactly. Like you talk to someone, an actual person, uh, in order to get verified to do that. Wow. Well, that's pretty cool. I don't. I, you know, I wonder what implications it'll have for the record makers. So, uh, you know, I'm sure there's obvious ones, but it can go. You know, how we approach everything from how we're handling the low end of our mixes to the high end, you know, knowing, you know, I, I mix for mastering now. I mix going into it knowing that, or I even track knowing like, oh, this is going to be totally crushed by the time it gets out there. So it's going to affect some of the choices I make, how much like, you know, EQ or something I'll put on, on what I'm tracking in just because I know what it needs to sound like when we're done. So, well, hasn't, um, haven't the productions of every era kind of, been tailored to the medium in which the majority of the listeners play it back on? I think so. I, I, I think so too. I would love to know like the requirements, like, yeah, we're putting this out on like cassette, like what that requires, you know, it'd just be weird. I'm sure there was a whole page of it <laughs> that I've never seen, but real quick about uh, referencing stuff. Cause it hasn't, we didn't mention it. And I know some of you guys who are, listening to this already know I'm going to say this, but for all you new guys, and we have quite a few new guys. Um, if you are not referencing in any of the way, in the way that Alex said, which means, uh, doing it through the Q outputs, uh, get yourself a plugin called magic AB, which you insert on the very last insert in the session on your master, on your master bus. And, use that you can load in nine different tracks and level match them all it's uh the best it's the best referencing tool i've seen so far it's called magic ab and it's a pretty inexpensive plugin just please don't use youtube <laughs> or Bandcamp. oh god yeah so let's uh let's switch gears and talk about some guitar stuff oh awesome you ready yes go for it let's do it yeah all right, boy. Uh, just out of curiosity, <laughs> yeah, uh, homie. Yeah, do you have like a do you have a certain go to as far as microphones for recording guitars? Like, are you in the camp of always start with fifty seven? Or I, I know you've worked with some pretty rad dudes, so I'm kind of curious. I think there needs to be some type of constant when you're experimenting. So yeah, you know, I'll definitely just set up the 57, but that means I'm going to like probably shoot out four or five different cabs if that's available. And then we're going to shoot out the heads. But yeah, you know, I was 57, 121 for a while, but you know, the 121 is really dependent on the room you're in because it's figure eight pattern. So you're getting a lot of kickback on the backside of the mic. Uh, and, th- and she can get weird depending on the room. But uh, the last record I did, I fell, I refell back in love with the 57 and 421 on a, a, that new PV212 with the Heritage 30s that they're putting out, the 5153. It was that and then a, a diesel, whatever the four channel one is, not the super, cra- it's a diesel, so it's going to sound awesome. And man, that, w- that, was, that was it for me. That was the best sound I'd, I'd gotten in a while. So I remember a few weeks back, you sent me pictures of some Friedman amps. Oh yeah. The one client I work for has got a bit of a problem. He spends a lot of money on amps. Um, so he's got the Harry Brown I 100 and then he just got one of the naked amps, um, which was designed for Billy Howardell of a perfect circle. 
Um, the thing about his, he has like the original four Billy version, which are there are only four floating around. So one of the techs at Friedman sold it to him because he was just moving crap out and didn't need it anymore. And that being said, he also had the same version built by Nailer, N-A-Y-L-O-R, which are some of my favorite heavy gain amps on the, on the planet. I've never even heard of Nailer. Yeah, it's a, it's a small operation, but man, those things are crushing. And they're simple too. It's not like, you know, you know, look at it and there's 15 knobs and an AB triode thing, this fat switch. It's just like bass, mid, treble, gain, bite, and that's it. It's just like, just set everything flat and you're like, oh. Well, fuck me. This sounds awesome. Uh, so I, I own a Bogner Ecstasy, but it's one of my favorites. But I got to say that want to know what keeps me from using it as much as I would like to is too many options. Yeah. It's uh, you're sitting on the back and you're hitting all the different like the fat switch and this switch. And you're like, I, I can't tell the difference. And then in your mind, you're constantly going, did I, did I make the right choice? Did I make the, is, is this right? Is this going to be awesome? Is this going to sound good when I mix it? But, um, yeah, I think you just got to kind of shoot from the hip with some of those amps and just kind of trust your in- trust your instinct. Yeah, I think so, too. However, I will say that I prefer amps that are like what you just described, like gain, treble, bass, mid, bite, go fuck yourself. You know, like that, I, I think that that's my favorite way that an amp face is or could be. And maybe it's just growing up like with old Marshall, like Jason 800s or SVTs, it's like, there wasn't all this stuff. I, 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 is it better sometimes? I don't know, but I don't I'm trying to think of it too much. I try to think of it more like, I guess the band, the song, the player first, like people, you know, I've had a couple people ask me like, well, what's your favorite amp? Or like, well, what are we, what are we recording? Or like, well, what's your favorite amp? I'm like, I have no idea. What are we doing? What's the song? So, well, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think, a 5150 block letter, which is kind of the staple for so much heavy music, sounds like garbage clean, for instance. So I, I don't like when getting questions like, what's your favorite piece of gear or about or something? It's like, what is the sixth grade? I mean, there's stuff we lean on because we know what it's supposed to sound like, and that'll be our jump off point. But where we end up in a couple of hours is it could be a whole different thing that we didn't, we didn't even think we would get there. And I think I like that experimenting. It's like looking for the light switch in a dark room. I think that's where like the real art of the technical engineering happens. I think people get scared of engineering a little bit because it's like, it's all numbers and technical stuff, but like, nah, man, it's, it's, a, it's, a, I think it's an art form that I hope we don't lose too much with the way things are going and how quickly we have to move now with records experimenting. Do you ever get into amp sims at all, or are you a purist when it comes to... Uh, hell no. I'll, whatever works, man. I, I like the uh, the Lapu or Pooline plugins, I think, are pretty cool. I know those those are kind of a crowd favorite. I've, I've had... I thought those were pretty dope. But I, I don't... I'm, there's so many out there, I kind of can't keep up. Like, I got my my buddy Cody, who's a, a younger kid, and all into the eight and nine string guitars and shit, and using the the impulse responses i'm like i don't know like i just turn the knobs on the mouse until i think it sounds good but i've I've been a like nick nick crow makes a cool 5150 kind of thing that's really kind of edgy and can be really cool for some parts 
But uh, I've been most impressed with the Poulains. Maybe people think I'm out of my mind, but or Loop Lapu. I don't know. They're free and they work. I think for free plugins, they're about as good as it's going to get. Yeah, I mean, I haven't tried like the Soft Tube Friedman or uh, or any of that. So if I have Pod Farm, I use it for some stuff. We should send you the Toneforge stuff if you haven't tried it. I actually haven't tried that stuff out. So yeah, I'd, I'd, I'm always like willing to try try the new shit and see what the what's hip with the kids today. Yeah, we're gonna we'll send you that after uh, after this gets done. Making making a note right here. Send Alex free Tone Forge. All right, <laughs> or any free shit you have kicking around. Well, there's quite a bit, you know. Got a whole warehouse. I'm just kidding. A whole hard drive. We were joking about the gain reduction. I was one of those late night phone calls you and I have, and I was like kind of freaking out about how awesome gain not to blow smoke up your ass or anything. About <laughs> Thanks, how awesome man. gain reduction was just because like it didn't sound like anything. Like it had its own vibe and its own thing, and it either works really awesome or it doesn't. And I think that's like the new platform for plugins to go. I'm tired. I don't need another 1176 emulator. Yeah, exactly. That's how I feel too. It's like we have all this uh, this uh, space to work in. How come nobody's trying to do something new? <laughs> yeah, like just program weird shit into there and see and see what happens. I mean, at this point, and I mean, I don't want to give away my secret or anything, but it's like there's a whole generation of people that don't know what 1176 even is. Yeah. So what are you selling to them? Like you're selling them something they don't understand. It doesn't make any sense. So that I, I really approach my products as just like a whole new thing. Like, and people, are, people will check out Tone Forge and be like, what is this based on? Is it a Mesa or is it a, you know, 6505? Like neither. I just made it up. <laughs> yeah. No, I turn the knobs. If it works great. If not, there's a million other things you can use. Yeah. I think that that's a valuable insight that, I mean, I know what a URI 1176 is like, but uh, what kid has $6,000 to spend on? Yeah, you know, and that's kind of what's baffling. As the record, bu- record budgets plummet, the price of gear is skyrocketing. Like, really? You're going to sp- like a $7,000 compressor? I'm sure it's awesome, but that's like some record budgets now for rock, for like newly signed like bands, like not calling out any labels or anything, but that's what they have to spend. I'm going to spend my entire budget on one compressor. I I think I'm all right. (laughs) When there's already like some pretty damn good versions of it out there. Yeah. And what's also people forget is like what you you kind of going back to, you just kind of make it the way you make stuff the way you just like the way it sounds. What people like about that older weird gear were like the flaws were te- technically are flaws like oh this distorts in a cool way fuck yeah like oh this doesn't handle like the whole magic with the ssl channel dynamics where they didn't handle the low end well so what happens you get a ton of low end through because the compressor doesn't react to it at all yeah well i would like to think that you know i mean i don't know the history of a, a lot of analog gear because i'm not a huge analog guy but I'd like to think that whoever made the 1176 or maybe whatever came before it was just someone like me, you know, trying to create something new. Yeah, just putting stuff together and hoping nothing catches on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I I feel like the most exciting stuff. And I think that goes back to the art of it, like not looking at the numbers all the time and just, you know, figuring it out like, oh, this is wrong in every sense of like technical anything, but it, it works like you know, and that's happened. Like you asked, like what the fifty-seven is, and sometimes you know, 
using like a, a small diaphragm, like a cam 184 or something might work on the guitar, but you know, you don't know until you try. And I, I read that with Kurt Ballou as well. He like, he switches up guitar mics and cabs every record. Just as a, as a, uh, discipline. Yeah. Just as a baseline. And I, w- I was like, that's really like, that's hard, dude. Like that's impressive, you know, especially with the go, go, go pace. And I know he, he tracks a whole band in a week. Oh yeah. He, he moves quick. So that, that's, that's really impressive. And I, you know, I, I try to take some of that, but you know, sometimes, you know, some of the bands we're getting, we don't, we just don't have the, like the time or we just have to go. They don't want to sit and wait for it. I remember you, Joe, you had mentioned, or I read something like years ago, you had written an ultimate metal where you're like, people were giving you flack for your sounds. And he's like, you know, like, dude, these bands coming in want the sound. So I just give them the sound. You know, they don't want to sit there and experiment. And sometimes it happens with some bands. They just want the sound. Yeah. And I think ultimately, you know, it's tough. There's so many different ways to look at things. You can look at it as an art form, as a business or as both or a balance, a balance of either or. And that's where I think a lot of people struggle because there's so many people are like, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't just give people what they want because if they want auto-tune, then what they want is stupid. And it's like, no, not necessarily. I mean, I, that's the the thing that I always try to put in front of me is that like, there's so many different goals and so many different people that want different goals. And so it's like when I, you know, got asked to do attack attack, I was really uncomfortable about the whole autotune thing. But like when I actually talked to the band, sit down and talk to them, they were like, no autotune is like a, it's like a thing. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, is I thought autotune was just like a, a way to make, you know, crappy people sound good. And they're like, no, it's like a, a cool thing that's happening right now in music and listen to this, listen to that. And I'm like, Oh, I see what you're saying. And there's so many other people that want to attack me with a sword or something and be like, you shouldn't have done that. That was stupid. It sounds stupid. It's like, well, yeah, but that's for you and not, not for this whole other audience or this whole other generation of people that just like that sound for whatever reason. So I, you know, freedom. <laughs> I always think of that the, the sketch from the Eddie, one of the Eddie Murphy stand-ups where he's getting chewed out by Bill Cosby and he calls Richard Pryor and Richard goes, "You you selling tickets? You selling shirts? You know, people laughing when you tell your jokes. Exactly. Tell Bill Cosby to shut the fuck up. You know, shut the fuck up. Have a coke and a smile. You know what I mean? Like, it's I probably butchered that, but I, I kind of think of that too. And I, and I think you know you might not be the right person for the band that, you know, you want to get out there and get as much as work as possible. And I get it. Like you're hungry. And, but sometimes for everyone's sake, just walk away from the project. You don't mean Joey. You mean like uh, the, the proverbial you. Yeah. Yeah. The proverbial you. Just like uh, talking to everyone. Like it took me years to learn that. Like, and you get so hurt when you got rejected or something didn't happen. And you're like, Oh man. And, and you know, whatever. Let's talk about that for a second. Cause there's been times when a band hasn't come back to me where at the time I was all huffy. And then after a while I was like, you know, I hated recording them. Like, why am I mad? Why am I mad about this? Like <laughs> we totally, we totally didn't see eye to eye. I was counting down the days for them to leave. I kept complaining at night to my girlfriend about how, working with them fucking sucks and I can't wait to not work with them. And then why am I mad? They're not coming back. I got what I asked for. Yeah. I, I think because we, we all take a lot of pride in our work. I don't think we'd put up with so much bullshit if we, if we didn't and you want to make things that are awesome and that 
you know, bands are happy with and that, that the kids buy. And even it was just awful. You kind of forget about that shit when the record comes out and the band's doing well and you see pictures of people singing along. You kind of forget about, oh my God, that was like an awful, awful time. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, there are a couple of bands that started at Joey's, came to Dan's, and now they moved on. And I, I, I don't know if we all had the same experience, but it was like, oh, the, you know, the record did it pretty good, but I don't know if I could handle another record with those dudes. <laughs> like, I love them to death in a social setting, but man. Like that might have been, you know, maybe it's good where it is. Like we chat, you know, we go to shows, we hang out, we get drunk, but you know, maybe working together wasn't the best thing. And I think the better you deal with rejection, like the more happy you're going to be first off, like, cool. Like I got rejected from a record yesterday, like for a mix. We loved your drums. We're going to go with the producer. Awesome. Like, I'll see you guys around the bend. Good, best of luck. Yeah. I, well, I, I want to say that a, a lot of this stuff, I feel like I learned from these bands. Like, I learned how to work in a team or, or work with people from probably the Dev Wars Prada. Uh, I, I'm fine with naming them. Because those guys, and I don't mean this in a negative way at all. In fact, that this is probably why they're good, honestly, is that they just are not very easy to work with and and in that t- what i mean by that is that they put the standards so high and they all have very different opinions about what they like you know mike mike is this one direction you know jeremy's this other direction daniel's this other direction and so what ends up coming out of that situation is like so well thought about and so diverse in a certain way certain sense that it's like so good and that's part of what makes them amazing is that they can sit there and fucking argue about the, the dumbest shit, but it matters so much in the end. And, you know, when I first, I, I did a lot of albums with them, so I kind of had to learn how to work with those guys. But in the end, I kind of look back on it and I'm like, oh, it, it makes so much sense now. Yeah. Um, and, and then I learned how to work with people through those, through that kind of, uh, that work environment. Yeah. Those dudes definitely fight for it. And it's really, cool process to see where you know some bands are just going to come in and be like cool yeah whatever sounds good i guess that's the sound right that's okay yep just, just put it out uh cool i'm gonna go in the other room like no, they, they really care a lot and i think that's kind of like what separates like the long-term bands that are going to be around for the 10 years and we see it like you see it with prada and i know i see it with pierce the veil like just being the like the last the kind of the more recent thing I've worked on, like they fight for it. You know, there's no they're gonna work it out and they're gonna put the time in. And I th- and I think they're now afforded that luxury. I think you've got to maybe pay your dues a little bit more now to like for the label to like chill out and give you well three months, then six months, then and then you know two years to put out a record. Whereas like you know some of the smaller bands on on the metal labels are getting. You got six weeks, bud. So, you know, sometimes with some of the smaller bands that I've had to work with where there is very limited budget, you got to get it done within four weeks or five weeks. Like, there's no way around it. You're not spending 90 days on this or more. Like, it's four weeks or you're paying out of pocket to keep recording these guys. You know, a lot of them have these big dreams for what can get for what they want done, but it's just not all possible in that amount of time. So at what point do you think it's good for bands to 
start fighting for the ideals? And at what point do you think it's good for them to uh, realize what's realistic? And at what point is it bullshit that you should give up on your ideals? Do you get what I'm saying? Like at some, there is always going to be resistance when you're fighting for something to be better, right? So at what point is it legitimate to fight for something better? And at what point are you just causing problems? I, I think that's where it's the producer's job to step in because he's got to look at the big picture. Like if the guitar player or someone is fighting for this little two-bar thing where he's like, no, we have to have this guitar line in, I think it's the producer's job to step in and be like, okay, grand scheme of things and the quality of this song, I want you to explain to me why this little two-bar guitar lick is going to make the song better. And I think that's kind of where it comes down. It's like someone looking at the big picture. I, I think, you know, in the moment, 14-hour days, you get caught up in, in like, you're in the rabbit hole. I think that you're, you, there needs to be always someone in the room who kind of can, like, step back and, and look at the small picture. I don't, I don't think you should ever stop fighting. I think you, you should know, you know, I guess where the battle's over and the war's still going on, if that makes sense. Like, well, maybe your idea didn't make it this time, but, you know. There's always next time. And well, maybe all we had time for was to track tight ass rhythms, tight ass leads, tight ass drums, tight ass bass, and tight ass vocals. But there wasn't time to do like a million guitar layers and then synths and all this stuff. There just wasn't that kind of time. Yeah. And I, I think it's ultimately the band as a whole and, and the producer to kind of be like, we still have a good song. You know, we, it, it could be better. Yeah. But we, you know, we still have the song. And I, I, I think there really is no right answer to that. Maybe the producer agrees that we need the two-bar thing, but three guys in the band are like, no, we don't have the time. I have definitely agreed with bands at certain points where there was no budget left and given them like a week of free time to be able to complete a few things. I've done that a few times. Yeah, we, we you know you definitely done it because ultimately it's going to come out, it's going to have your name on it. And if it sounds incomplete, now, especially now with you know sessions that are 300 damn tracks, you got to have, you got to hit kind of fire on all engines a little bit. I kind of feel a little bad, not bad is the right word, but it worries me that the label send bands in with only four weeks. I wish they spent a little bit more money because then they have maybe, you know, the records don't move units like they used to, but I, I think it kind of cheapens the result to the fans. I don't think the fans get a good record. And what, how does that incentivize them to spend money at the show? You want to know there's there is a solution for this. No one's going to take this idea and run with it, but there is a solution and it'll work. And the solution is a signing freeze for one year for all labels. Um, you know, if there was a signing freeze, <laughs> it would restore a lot of order to the to the to that process. A signing freeze and then a, I mean, and I don't actually believe this because I believe in 100 percent free market. But just in, in this ideal universe, if you could have the amount of bands that labels are signing now, like you have a quota um, and you can't go over it. Uh, and then we start a signing freeze now. I bet that within a year, the music industry would be in a way, way better place. They'd stop. They'd have to actually think about who they're signing. During this one year of no signing, a lot of the bands that don't deserve to be signed will fall apart. So Cream will rise to the top like it normally does. And then if they can only sign X number of bands per year, they'll have to really think about who they're signing uh, to get the most return on their investment. 
I feel like those two things would solve so many of these problems, but that's not going to happen. So <laughs> I'm just talking out my ass. Yeah, I think it seems like they just sign. Um, they'll sign 30 bands and hope one sticks, and spend you know five grand a band if one band sticks and they sell some units. Cool. I get you know I guess we met our quota for the month. So yeah, I'm learning that side now with working you know with my new kind of the, the new venture I'm going down with working at this label. You should convince them not to sign anything else for you. No, I mean that's kind of we have two bands. Yeah. yeah, we have two bands. We're launching the first one, and then we're going to hit the second one, and then maybe we'll think about signing the third next spring or finding a third project to really kind of to, to develop. There's one we've kind of been working with off off and on, but nothing set in stone yet because well, especially launching it, you know. If we don't get the first one right, the doors aren't going to be open for the second, the third, the fourth, and the 35th band down the line. So, so what are you looking for in a band? Oh, uh, that's, that's loaded. That's another, these are like Terry Gross questions. These are awesome. But really, what are you looking for? Like if, you're, if you've got two and you're possibly looking for one more in the near, near-ish future, meaning like next six months or something or... We kind of want to be moved a little bit, you know, something a little bit different to the table. Like I'm not expecting the next Jeff Buckley to come walking, walking into the room, but that would be nice though. I would, Oh my God, I sing to the high heavens, but I, I feel like things are a little bit kind of stagnant now. I'd like to see something a little bit different to the table. Like, you know, you're doing the kind of big ass intro to the screamy verse to the singing breaking Benjamin chorus back to the verse the super heavy bridge, two bar radio break, and then the double chorus out. I'd like to hear a little bit something different. And um, a singer that really pulls me in, I think is, is going to be the biggest one for me. Like everyone worries that they have to be a pretty boy and all this stuff. And I think that's nice, but uh, I'll take Andy Gould's line of like, I don't listen with my eyes. So I want someone like a singer to like really just grab me and like challenge me a little bit and, and, and fuck me up a little bit. I think that's why I kind of go to Jeff Buckley. I'd really like to hear that again. If you had a signing freeze, you could spend an entire year just looking for that person. Yeah, I, I think that would be awesome, you know. But a girl can dream. Yeah, I know. I'm quite a dreaming girl. So we've reached we've reached that point where uh, we have some questions from the audience for you. And I know that we said we were going to talk about guitar and bass, but... We've, I, apparently we have a lot of shit to talk about but most of these questions are about guitar and bass and uh, so you ready? Yeah, shoot. Alright, Rodney's asking, when is it necessary to split the DI into two tones? I guess he's talking about bass. I see it done all the time and I understand having control but what would make you decide to go that route? I can only see doing it if I want a good grit bass tone to complement the low end. I think he's talking about, you know, the Joey method of, you know, high passing yes. the, the DI and then running that through like a grindy and then just putting, you know, doing the max space thing. Um, I kind of don't do that, to be very honest, especially when I'm tracking. Like I know for Pierce the Veil, we had six or seven tracks of bass going to clean DI and then uh, sans amps and different pedals. When I would go for it, I don't know. It would have to like. Does it work for the song? Does it, are you getting the results you want? Maybe just throwing like that TSE Sansan bass pedal on there works for what you need. For me, his original idea was to try and get two different types of dynamic range on the two different layers. You know, to have the low end have a different range of dynamics versus the high end because 
it always seemed like it was either too compressed or not compressed enough, and I could never really get it just right. And like right when I would get the low end locked in, then the high end would be all cut up and and like you know didn't have any life to it. Yeah. So that was the, the whole idea behind splitting it into two different bands. Smarter man than I am. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't really do that. I'll, I, I'll sit there and reamp it through like different pedals until I, I get it. I think you know a Sansam like rack versus a Sansam pedal or like a full tone bass driver is one of my favorites. They're all going to handle it a little bit differently. And I think if you find a nice blend with that stuff and just experiment, you can do some really, really, really awesome stuff. So I agree. So Nikolai asks, asking, so, you know, and I'm assuming that this is about bass. So and he's saying, so, you know how certain notes just seem louder than others and seem to suddenly dominate. Is there a way to control those better than automation and limiting? Well, that can be two different things. You know, it can be the resonating, or that can be a couple of different things, uh, depending on what you're doing. Um, if you're miking up a cab, it could be the resonating frequency of that bass cab. It could be where you're playing that note on the neck. Um, it could be how hard you're hitting it. Um, it could, you know, it comes down to the player. Is he hitting that note hard? Is the way he's sliding into it, sliding out of it? I really think automation might be the, honestly, the best way. I think there's no kind of easy way around that. Um, notching out certain frequencies, multiband compression. I know like on certain P bases, it'll be weird from like a hundred to 200 Hertz. You just got to find out where, where it's resonating. But yeah, I, I think maybe just playing that note in a different spot on the neck could really help you out a little instead of going like past the 12th fret on the E string or drop Z, whatever kids are playing. And now go up to the next string and play. You'll get a lot more clarity. What, Joey, do you automate EQ for stuff like that? Yeah, I do a little bit of EQ automation on every like every major track, to be honest with you. I know like a lot of people are probably hearing me say that and go, oh, I've never seen you do it. Well, it's because you've never seen me mix a song for 20 hours, you know? <laughs> you, <laughs> you only get to see me do like four or five hours, but once you reach the 20th hour of the mix, it's things, things get crazy. Yeah. You start doing little 2k, you know, half decibel 2k bumps on guitars and, and when certain notes are played and dumb stuff like that. But yeah, for sure. Yeah. So these are you know, like primarily mixing questions, I have, um, which is totally cool. Um, I was kind of approaching it more from a tracking kind of mindset. Well, I think, I, I, I think that's totally valid though, especially if these guys are uh, tracking their own stuff and then mixing it. I think yeah. a lot of the people listening to this are probably doing double duty, you know? Yeah. And, but, but from a tracking point of view, my, my whole school of thought too, is it, as, as far as EQ goes to do the least amount. Um, but that's because I want to open, I want it to be a completely open canvas, a blank canvas for me to do whatever. Now I know over there at the at the Dan factory, you guys got all kinds of cool shit. So it's like you know, it's like way cooler for you guys to to dial tones in because you have all this great you know EQ gear to use and stuff. So yeah, it is kind of a, a luxury thing, but uh, you know we'll we'll always have the, the we never want to paint yourself into a corner, so we'll always have the clean DI. But like if I'm going to mic a kick drum, I'm going to push like 60 hertz, like. 18 decibels if i like it you know what i mean like yeah yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> fuck it you know it sounds awful but if it sucks that bad then i didn't tune it right or the player's terrible you know i guess kick 10 it is so <laughs> do you uh, do you know jay mass jay uh he's in defeater right he owns G- gateway yes. up in um 
in Boston. He used to do a bunch of my friends' hardcore bands. Yeah, he uh, he. We had him on. He told us that he doesn't capture DIs just just to grow grow uh, more hair on his balls. Basically, yeah, those, those <laughs> Massachusetts dudes, they are not fucking around, huh? No, they're not. Between him and Kurt, like holy shit. Yeah, there's enough like punishment to go around. <laughs> I, I think just when I do like kind of the indie noise rock stuff, yeah, you know, this is very much about the capturing the guitar player's tone, but like for some of like. When you're dealing with 300 tracks and you don't know what the programming is going to sound like, or you don't know what this is going to sound like yet, or like last minute the, the, the dude goes, we're going to put a whole string arrangement, you kind of want to have the DI because you might have to switch up the guitar tone. Yeah, highly likely. Yeah. yeah, and how quickly we're moving and how quickly decisions are made, like the most awesome sound I got for Dan just might not work. Well, fuck it, we got to reamp it. Cool, we got it. Let's go. Move on. What's next? Yeah. Exactly. I don't understand why not do it, but you know, that's just me. So Josh Miller's asking, getting the mids and high end of the bass to cut without fighting the click of the kick drum, I always have that problem. And I guess the question is, how do I get better at dialing the mids and high end of the bass and getting them to cut through the mix without them blending in with the click of the kick? Again, it depends on the resonating frequency too. You kind of kind of figure out, so you've, that kind of comes with mixing everything kind of together, I'd say. Like, instead of, like, soloing out and doing your EQs that way, kind of tr- do your EQs and, you know, get your balances and then do your EQs with everything playing, uh, I think is a big trick to that. Um, because you might want your, like, kick drum to be hitting at, like, 2K or 3K, but then, then that opens up, like, that 800 to 1.2K or 800 to 1.2K range for the bass, which, as a bass player, like... I always like kind of the, the the attack that comes with there. It's like super punchy for me. Um, some of the new kids like the grindy thing at 4K. I know like like the Will Putney thing. That's super hairy bass, and that's a little bit higher. I'm a huge fan of like side chaining the bass very lightly off of the kick drum. I know in Cubase, like just using the built-in one. So every time the kick drum hits, it kind of pushes away the bass just for a split second. And you can actually kind of have fun with the low end, depending on how long you have the compressor holding. And then there was something else. I, it, I had it, and then it just escaped me. But yeah, that's that's kind of... Oh, editing. I think getting all that stuff to line up right is like getting your kicks and your bass to kind of hit at the same time. You're going you're gonna to realize how much is going on down there phase-wise if all that stuff is lining up really nicely. I think that opens up so much of the frequencies. You know, if... if there's like a couple of milliseconds between when your kick drum hits, when your bass hits, it, it can kind of, they can kind of cancel each other out. So you'd like to make sure that bass and kick are lined the fuck up. Yeah. I, you know, I don't want to suck the entire life out of the performance, but we'll definitely get in there and do some guerrilla tactics to make sure everything's like hitting that speaker at the same time, because you can almost do uh kind of trick your ear a little bit to be like, man, that bass is super clanky, super clanky which it is, but you're not going to lose it when the kick drum hits because they're going to hit at the same time. So it's just going to make it seem more like in your face and more aggressive sounding, especially for like the metal shit that we're doing. I, I wonder how many guys listening actually factor in that this stuff needs to be physically reproduced by a speaker. Yeah, I mean, you got to know like the air, you know, it's moving air and if everything's hitting at the same time and your bass and kick drum are in phase and they're not like... Yeah, your your kick drum is hitting at sixty. Your bass is kind of living around that eighty hertz to a hundred thing. 
and you know everything is kind of pumping at the same time it really makes those like things just explode out of the speaker and i I think it comes down to tracking to be really honest with you like tracking and editing and making sure everything is tight i think a lot of kids are like putting so much faith into the mix and multi-band compression and all this crap when it just you got to track it right you got to make i think their worlds would be so much easier if they spent some time like slicing and dicing or practicing their instruments. I don't know. I don't want to get too crazy. <laughs> you don't want to dream too no, much. No, no, no. I, I know it's. <laughs> well, you know, when people say that your low end has to worry is like a puzzle, like a jigsaw puzzle. But once you get it, it just locks in and works. Like I, I know that like when I've gotten it to just finally work together, it's kind of like. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Like, you know that you just got it right where everything is just working together. So I think with a lot of people who are wondering how, like, is my low end good or not or what? I think um, you know it when you get it. Like, suddenly everything just focuses and there's this punch to your mix that's kind of undeniable. Low volume is pretty key, too. Like, some yes. people are, like, crank the fuck, like, listen to that low. It's like, yeah, but turn it down. And you'll hear all this weird stuff. If I know, if I can kind of hear things moving around and like, it sounds exciting. It's like the old Chris Lord algae thing, man. Like if you can get it sounding really exciting and pumping in a nice way and the low end, just hitting everything right at like speaking volume, when you crank the speakers, it, you'll probably shit your pants. <laughs> in a good, in a good way. way. I mean, is there really a, a bad way to shit no, your pants? No, <laughs> probably. I can't think of one. So here's another one. Mikhail's asking, how do you make the bass and guitar stick together i always find either one or the other to be too loud or too quiet that's that's kind of an interesting question i I don't know i guess more like how do you get them to work together and one not take over the other okay um i think it's knowing where you know especially with tuning stuff too it's it's what you're tuning you're in and knowing kind of your frequency spectrum and where to push like boost stuff and where to like cut stuff out like a, a drop D guitar is going to resonate significantly higher than like a drop A guitar. But if you're just going and just start boosting the same frequencies, shit isn't going to work that way. I think you got to know where your holes are and, and fill, in, fill in the gaps, as weird as that sounds. But I, it, I'm, I sound like a, a bumbling retard here. but No, it, we talk about this all the time, that depending on your tuning, that's going to tell you where your resonance is. Yeah, and I think also for people forget tempo too. Like if you're in a song, like my buddy was dealing, they came in with nine string guitars and then they tuned the bass drop C an octave lower than normal drop C. And they're playing at like Jesus. 200 BPM. I'm like, there's, it's not, you're not going to hear anything because you don't have time. The frequencies just literally don't have time to develop. <laughs> it's, just like, it's just flubby low. And like the string on the bass was too. Point. Maybe in a different universe. <laughs> yeah. Um, the laws of physics change. It has to do with like distortion on the bass too and which distortion you're using. You know, a lot of the guys are using pod farm. Um, so try the different amps. You might realize like maybe the invader doesn't work with the tone you chose or the tuning you're in. Like I like that criminal one, which I think is like a 5150. And the rectifier one, the Cali plate can sound really cool too if you EQ it right. So I think it, it just takes a little bit more just experimenting and seeing what works and not, you know, start with your presets, but you gotta, gotta fuck with it a little bit more. Like just for example, Meshuggah, I think I'm right on this, that their guitars and their bass are in the same octave. 
I believe I believe you're correct. You are absolutely yeah. correct on that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, come on, guys. Uh, not them. They're they're good. But it's like everyone else. Is like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> you don't need to be <laughs> going any lower. <laughs> well, you know, Meshuggah are one of those examples where like what they do works because they're just fucking amazing musicians, right? Like they can do a bunch of things that your normal player can try and fuck up and they'll sound great because they're Meshuga. Um Same way that Kurt Ballou can walk that edge between noise and awesome and like... Well, I actually, I like what you're saying because uh, I know a little story about Bleed. Um, the store, the uh, drummer, you know, they, they decided, they sat down and as a band and decided that they wanted to do this thing, Bleed, right? This song. And they were like, okay... In order for in order for us to like pull this off, uh, Thomas I'm gonna have to kill himself. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm gonna have to practice like for weeks and weeks and weeks just to be able to play this pattern. So he dedicated, you know, like a month of his life to just being able to, you know, with his feet and all that. So I think kids hear those songs and they think like, oh yeah, like my band could do that and they write a drum part and they go to a studio with a producer and he programs the drums for them. Then they try and play it live and it's just a, a, a sloppy mess. <laughs> and it's, it's because they don't appreciate the, the hard work and the time, and the effort that went into making that song possible. I mean, the you, mastery involved. Exactly. I mean, you can listen to it and it sounds so simple because they pull it off so fucking good. And to you, you're just like, you, you take that for granted all the, the lead up and the prep work that went into making that song possible. Yeah. I mean, and, and I spent a month and learned a couple of the sugar records and it was probably the best thing I ever did for myself. But like those guys are just insane and everything fucking grooves, no matter how techy and weird it is. It's still like, you're still going to bob your head. Uh, those guys are just on, they're playing on, I saw them at like new England death fest in like Oh seven. And I swear to God, every single band, was just lined up around the stage and like in front, just watching like mouth agape. Like, how are these guys doing it? How is, how is this physically possible? That's so good. It's funny. Kenny Grahowski, who's the drummer for Secret Chiefs, he's like on that Thomas Hawk level. So we would be sound checking, and I would just like call out and be like rational gaze, and he was like, "God damn it!" And he would just start playing it, and he would start improvising over the top of it, and it was just like seeing <laughs> that level of player in person, and like let alone getting to like work with them. And then sit in a van for fucking 20 hours with it's, it's pretty awesome. All right. Yeah. I have a question. Um, what's Trey Spruance like? Cause, uh, I, in my mind, that dude's a genius. He is like, he's super well read and like totally self-taught and all this Eastern philosophy. And that being said, he is like the sweetest guy ever. He's just like a total sweetheart. He's like, it's, it's like uncle Trey. Cause he's like kind of the elder of the group. And uh, he's just super humble about everything. Like he knows what he's capable of, but he's he's always like he's always on the hunt. He's he's like one of those guys that's always searching for something. Like in his like life education, whether it's spiritual, whether it's musical, whether it's food, whether it's something he hasn't heard before, whether it's something he hasn't read before. It's like he's truly one of those dudes where like this is a journey that I want to experience. And yeah, it's it's really kind of nice being around people like that you know like uh, self-improvement sounds like a tony robbins thing but like he really is he's just like a like a child of the world he wants to travel he wants to experience different shit and he's like the person like he wants to talk to you 
And it's really, really, really cool. Like he just wants to be immersed in life. And is he as good as I think he is at music? Yeah, he's pretty scary. He's just, he's at a point now where he's like operating on a different level too. Like the voicings and just what he, how he approaches the guitar is more than just like, I'm going to do like, I'm going to rip a sick fucking solo, bro. It's like, what can I say? What am I, what am I trying to get a point across to the listener with this? And it's, yeah, it's just, you know, it's really fucking crazy. And he'll put on the same, like that band will put on the same show and like an intimate, like 10 to 15 person setting as they will in front of like 2000 people. And like, that's the same tour. You know, it just happened to be an off night. And uh, they put on the same damn show because they were like, shit, we're going to try some new stuff now. We're going to experiment and we're going to operate as a band. We're going to learn how each other, like play off of each other. And I think some of that's missing in kind of heavy rock now too. Yeah, it's it's pretty much gone. It's like hit the backing track rig, go. So Yeah, Trey's band, Mr. Bungle, was a huge, huge, huge influence on me. Yeah. Like, yeah, I remember listening to, like, The Girls of Porn. So, man, what the hell is this? <laughs> like, 10-inch dead dick. I have no idea what you're talking about. And then, <laughs> I, you know, like, 11-year-old me, I had no idea what porn was yet. It was, like, two more years till I realized I could have more fun by myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> than out in the world. And with, the, with that, I want to ask you another question about bass. Well, because bass and porn go together. Um, Depends. Sean Joyce is asking one of my one of his biggest issues is getting a more three dimensional sounding bass, and he says since bass is primarily mono, what's the best and safest way to make a deep and wide bass that jumps out at you? You could do the old uh, Andy Wallace trick, which is putting a slight chorus on it. That can be really cool or really bad. But if you guys are splitting DIs and you're worried about the low end kind of farting out, you could use the high DI and do that, which is like. Pitching left and right, maybe like seven cents down on one side, seven cents up on the other, and just kind of blending that up underneath. That's like one of my favorite. It's like an old harmonizer H three thousand thing. That's like one of my favorite things to do for vocals because the perceived loudness of that mono source is it, it seems way louder, but it, it's kind of like blended across your sound field. It's a really cool trick. I've done it on. Uh, I- a, the, a good plug-in for that is a little micro shift by Sound Toys. You know, if you put, you basically put it on your bass from like three or four hundred and up, yep. and then tuck that in. It's very, very nice way to do that trick. Yeah, and uh, if you don't have that doubler two, is really awesome. You just got to get rid of the direct signal. Now, I wouldn't put it like right on the track. I'd maybe do it as like an aux end, and that way you can just kind of blend it up, and it won't really affect what's going on. You know, if you realize it's starting to like get a little weird, you can always pull it back. And it gives you a little bit more control. What do you think, Joey? How would you go about it? Uh, I think for me, like the one thing that I always try to avoid is, I mean, I, I feel like this kind of goes without saying, but maybe maybe to some people listening to this, they have never thought of this. But like you don't want your low end to be like stereoized, stereoized, if, if that's a word. Like, uh, you know, I try to keep the low end always like right down the middle, right? Like, super mono but if i but then when you do that it's real plain so how do you like get the the bass to sort of jump out for me it's always been getting the eq perfectly right and getting the saturation right but then uh 
I mean, in addition to that, you can also still do some of those cool tricks. Like you can do like that chorus trick, but just do it only on the high end of the bass. Because I, I split my bass, which we talked about earlier, but like the low end is going to be mono and, and straight up down the center. And then that high end, I can throw like chorus on there or distortion on there, whatever it is to kind of get it to jump out in the mix. And, and you can run that in stereo. So sometimes I'll put like... I'll take my bass track, I'll put it on two stereo audio tracks, but even though the low end one is not really generating any stereo information, like the only thing that's coming out of that track is mono, but then in the other one, having that be in a stereo audio track kind of allows me to, if I just decide that on a whim, like I can throw a stereo plugin on it, like a chorus or whatever, and uh, that that's open to me. I don't have to like worry about the track being mono, if that makes sense. Yep. Here's another one from Austin. And th- this is interesting because it's a non-technical question, but it's a good one in my opinion. Austin's asking, how do you get that pop-punk mid-range bass sound that just cuts through the mix so well? <laughs> you know what he's talking about? I know exactly what he's talking about. I do too. Yeah, like I, I always looked at like um, All Time Low. Uh, what record is that? It's like their big record. Um, or like Green Day. And for me and maybe you guys have found this too, is that it's just like, you don't, you don't scoop the bass. Uh-huh. In fact, you probably do the opposite. Like the area that you would, that most people scoop, I would, I'd boost, I'd boost it, <laughs> you know, somewhere around like 400, 800 Hertz, like maybe even 200 Hertz depending on tuning, but like boost that. Like a lot of that bass, like that Mike Dirt thing, sounds almost like a JMP, like a Marshall amp, not totally distorted, but it definitely sounds like they makes like some type of, Marshally Lemmy thing in there a little bit just to kind of get that kind of attack and clarity on the top end. I think it's a really cool sound. Agreed. So Alb is asking, saying his biggest problem is the relationship with the kick. How do you discover who's under and who's above and how and when to decide which one should be under or above? So I guess what he's asking is when do you decide that the kick should, you know, be focused at 60 and the bass should inhabit 80 to 100 and when do you decide the opposite? And that's a good one too. I kind of start with those, and then again, it comes down to the the, the, the tuning of the song because maybe the fu- fundamental of the bass, like that open C or that open B, is going to be hitting right around fifty hertz. So maybe then push the kick drum a little bit higher around eighty. It might not be that super subby kick drum, but it's going to sound better in the song, and it's going to translate better across your speakers because the energy of everything hitting at the same time is is, is going to have the same impact, just slightly different, but. Here's one from Sean. He's asking. He says his biggest question is to fuck with amp tone or not to fuck with amp tone. That is the question. As in, when do I bust out the whole rig to reamp with, or stick to making the DI super dope? When? Do, how does that work for you? When? When do you decide we're going to go amp on this, and when do you decide? Well, you just go amp from the beginning I'll, I'll, and then decide later. I'll always have an amp. Um, I, I try to think of what the final product is going to be like the final mix and what the fuck you know when i'm doing stuff for dan i kind of leave it a little bit more open i won't go crazy dialing it in because i'll spend three hours four hours doing it and then he'll come in and make like three changes or whatever in 15 seconds and it sounds better um but yeah i'll usually start with a clean di my s i have like a 70 blue line svt and then uh, a sans amp I mean, there's really no wrong wrong answer. If you, it depends on how much time you want to spend on it. If you can get close enough with the 
the plugins and you know you got 15 more songs to mix for the amount of money they're giving you okay just do that like it sounds kind of awful but and, you know and, no, and then the flip side is like i don't care i'm gonna sit here and i'm gonna get it right i'm gonna bust out every single amp in my collection dude if you want to do that i salute you that's that's awesome like go for it it'll probably pay off in the end and if it doesn't and you end up going back to like you know your plug-in you might have learned something along the way about your amp or about the bass that you didn't know before that you can like now go grab for like more quickly because you, you figured something out. You're like, Oh shit, I did that on the thing. It didn't work out, but here's the perfect, perfect opportunity for me to use that thing. I learned. His key takeaway is uh, the more you experiment and the more you learn, the more, uh, the more robust your toolbox, your mental toolbox for this stuff is going to be. Yeah. And then you get to a point where you're not thinking about it anymore. You're kind of, you get to, you know, you kind of shoot from the hip and you're like, well, I did this, I did this, let's put it all together and see what happens. And I, that's, that's where it gets fun when you're not worried about like, oh my God, well, I'm cutting a 200 at like a cue of this or that. It's like, no, fuck it, just go. But I, I think you got to learn like the fundamentals before you can kind of do that or not and just fucking go for it and see what happens. There's really no wrong way. Here's one. And this is going to be the last question. And this is from Bobby. And, uh, and picking this one because I think it's applicable to a lot of our listeners because a lot of them don't have subs. So I'm sure that this comes up a lot. So he says, I don't have a subwoofer. So anything on where the sub of the bass should sit, car testing is always a disappointing surprise. I probably went to my car five times checking the low end of the We Came As Romans mix. So I guess how how would you recommend getting better in that you know, sub below 80 or below 60 zone uh, for people who don't have a subwoofer. Uh, go to your car 10 more times. That's kind of what I do. <laughs> like, you know, if your speakers that you have aren't representing what's going on below 80, you know, you'll hear upper harmonics of that stuff if you're not cranking your shit and you're kind of at that nominal volume and you're kind of here where, you know, everything kind of is moving right. But go back and forth to your car. Use you know frequency analyzers. The the, the waves one is great, and it, you know I use the the Nickelback something in your mouth mix by Randy Staub, and then mastered by friggin' Ted Jensen. Like if my low end EQ curve is kind of in that ballpark, I'm like yeah, I'm I'm probably hitting somewhere close. But yeah, just learn your speakers and learn where you know go back and forth. Take the time. Like I still do it. Like bounce it 15 times, go to your car, go listen to speakers until you know your, until you know what your monitors are doing and you know what's going on. There's no, there's no shame in that. Like, and there's no, there's no magical button. That's just going to be like, ah, I figured out low end. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. How do you do it, Joe? You've never had a sub. Just, I, same thing. Check on everything. Check on the car, check on the headphones. Uh, I mean, really that's it. Sounds like, sounds like the dude who asked this, is already doing the right stuff and was hoping he, that he was there hoping was a, there was a magic <laughs> answer or something yeah, like sorry, yeah. Dude. <laughs> yeah welcome to welcome to our hell of a reality <laughs> that we live in <laughs> I, uh, I had a friend joke with me recently it was kind of a little bit of morbid humor but he goes man i remember in college we'd go out partying or whatever and you'd be sitting in your room listening to snare samples and i kind of didn't say anything back and he was just like and now i work in a factory and you're working on records 
just like Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of he kind of punchlined that one for himself. Yeah, I like I didn't even go that dark with it. I was just like, yeah, well, you know, I wanted to do it, and you know, whatever. I was kind of a weirdo in college anyway, so fuck it. So, <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean, that's absolutely relevant because yeah, it does. I mean, I've gotten up to like fifty versions of a mix. It doesn't happen like that anymore, but. And 50 versions where I check on a boombox, check in the car, check every fucking place possible. Yeah, but like you know, believe it or not, and you do get better. You just gotta keep like keep. It sounds so cliche, but just keep like running at the wall. I think I don't know if it's maybe a generational thing, but I didn't come up with presets or anything like that, or like let me get those samples. Like it was like kind of like figure it out on your own type of thing. Um, and maybe it's just a generational thing. It seems like kids just, I don't blame anybody for it. And it's not like this is good or this is bad, but I think kids want the presets and then they get kind of a little bummed out why their shit doesn't sound like, like Joey's or, you know, or Dan's or something like that because they didn't kind of fight for it. And yes, the presets are a good jump off point, but they don't really go into like what's going on. Uh, within that preset or why it works a certain way. It's funny when getting people samples was much harder when I was coming up. And when I finally convinced someone to send me their samples, they did. And I was like, okay, why aren't my mixes as good as yours? I got your samples. Yeah. And, and, Fuck. Yeah, and I, I mean, I've heard, I know Paul, we met a couple of times who was Andy Wallace's current assistant and he was nice enough just to show me the end the famous Andy Wallace snare sample that's been on the Slayer and the Rage Against the Machine records. It's nothing crazy. It's really nothing crazy. Um, and that guy, you know, turned that into a not not in a snare sample, but he was getting fifteen grand a mix for a long time. Jesus. Well I think the, the sometimes it's it's you know, just the the concept of uh well not the concept but like just the use of a sample even no matter what the sample is you know just having that consistency there those frequencies like always there for you and then you can kind of manipulate them how you need yeah i think the big uh uh there was some some talk but check the phase on your samples too man you know you can layer seven samples of snares together but if they're not hitting in phase then you're just you're working against yourself yeah print that shit and check the fucking phase man all the time. And then sometimes the way people are routing within their DAW can like adversely affect the phase. Like if the way you're sending your base, if you've got it sent to three different places and you're not, and I don't, you know, I, I know Ian, we spoke about this, you know, if you're sending, if you're doing this in pro tools, watch out. Yeah. I mean, things can get, things can get hairy cause they're not in your delay compensation. They're not really calculating for like what it takes for the program to send the audio from here to there. So, Make sure that everything is routed from, from the same place to different places, you know, with the same start time. So, like, route, route stuff off of your audio track rather than, like, okay, so I've got my base DI feeding my base sub, like, group, not, and then I want to feed that to a distortion thing and something else. Don't feed it off of that first group. Like, feed it off the base DI track. Very, very, very important. Like that, when I, you know, when I found that, I was like, oh my, I just had my head in my hands. Like I'm a schmuck. Well, you want to know something that right there is an instant mix better overnight kind of magic button. Like those kinds of things, like they sound really basic, but those are the things that if you're getting wrong, the moment you stop doing those things wrong, 
your work will improve drastically. Yeah. Uh, Joey, are you messing around with parallel stuff at all, or have you kind of just fuck it? Nah, nah, I haven't. I think we've shown it a few times, like on Nail the Mix, but uh, I never really find myself reaching for that. I, uh, I remember I was doing some assistant work for Alex Newport, and we were doing the block party and city and color stuff, and he lived in that world, and it was really cool to see. He was doing it on an SSL, but like he was running the snare through these weird Japanese fuzz pedals and all this crazy shit. And it- See... If I was that guy and if I had, I had that stuff, I would I would live in parallel world too. But I I think one of the big problems of that, like in the digital space, is just latency. Um, you know, you never really know if your latency is tight or not unless you like record it back in and then look at it. Yeah, and then you go down to the sample and you're like, oh my god, like all this bullshit <laughs> I thought I was doing, and it's just um, losing everything. Yeah. But yeah with a console where it's all electronic and it's literally going at the speed of electricity, it's, it works. So, but you know, I guess we can't go too much into that stuff because who's really mixing on an SSL anymore? Corn if you dick. Maybe, maybe Dan will listen to this episode. And he'll just be like, dude, I hate you. You're a dick. <laughs> I get a call from him. So, um, do you guys have any other questions for me? I hope. No, no, that's, that's great. We wanted to actually thank you for coming on and, uh, being so generous with your time and answers and hopefully uh everybody looks at you as an example to follow and takes everything you said seriously into heart i I appreciate it i'm actually flattered you even asked in the first place i've kind of been a behind the scenes guy for so long it's kind of weird to i feel like i'm kind of like golem or something stepping into the light a little bit i mean there's lots of amazing engineers in this world who work on the records everybody listens to but just aren't the guy in the spotlight who have plenty to share yeah i mean some of my heroes i've never read an interview or like one interview and they're like doug mckean who's rob cavallo's engineer who did like all the green day records i'd love to read an interview with like a more in-depth one-on-one with him i think i don't know if he was on pensado's place or something but that dude's a fucking genius. Well, I mean, let's let's just bring this all back home. Dan, for a long time, Dan Corner for a long time, was that guy who was the behind-the-scenes genius engineer who nobody knew that he was, like, the man. Yeah. I, th- I think now people know he's the man, but I think for a long time people had no idea who he was or how important of a role he played on those records. We exposed him. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, we ha- I, I'm not going to say we exposed them, but we definitely shined a light on I think people sure. finally fucking figured it out. I, th- I think it kind of everybody at the same time kind of was like, this guy's amazing. Yeah, because I came in into the, into the last year of, of that world before, you know, Dan was like, hey, asshole, you're with me. Um, and it, it, it was blatantly apparent. And I had heard rumors of it before, but... Uh, yeah, I, I kind of don't. Everyone was kind of afraid now, like to say anything because of someone's reach or whatever. But like, fuck that. It was, you know, thank God for Dan Cato and John Bender. Those three guys made some amazing fucking records. Hats off, dude. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> kind of set the bar, at least for me personally, because there was like a lot of stuff coming out like 2007 to two, like 2011, and uh, yeah, they just. You know, those three dudes, like Dan's stuff, just had a whole other depth to it that I wasn't really hearing with some of the major rock stuff coming out. It was darker. There was more low end. It was it just it was cool to me. 
Yeah, I've always thought his stuff is incredible. Well, Alex, thank you for coming on. You rule. We love you. You're sexy. I, I, I work yeah. out. I work out. Not slower. slower. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do this again sometime, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, thanks, guys. It was fun. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Two Notes Audio Engineering. Two Notes is a leader in the market for Mobos, Cabinet, and Mic Simulators. Guard the days of having ISO rooms or having to record an amp at ear bleeding volumes to capture that magic tone. The Torpedo Live, Reload, and Studio allow you to crank your amp up as loud as you want, but record silently. Check out www.2-notes.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit nailthemix.com slash podcast.